Welcome to episode 22 of Invest and Scale. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo. And in this episode, we have Jeffrey Evanson, who graduated from West Point, joined the Army, and then left to go through a financial path and career in the more corporate environment, learn about acquisitions entrepreneurship, and went and bought over four businesses in less than 10 years. In this episode, we share a little bit about his journey, the importance of partnerships, communication, relationships. He took us through the journey of the type of businesses he bought, the challenges he was finding, and he also shares more details about the franchise model and his philosophy on setting great partnerships and what he's now doing to help other service graduates buy and acquire businesses. So enjoy this episode. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Gabriel. Really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Good deal. Well, man, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for your support, your inspiration, and you know, throughout the journey, you've been part of the Acquisitions Lab team, and you've been very, very helpful, very attentive, and I just want to thank you and, and appreciate you for that. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it's, the Acquisition Lab's been something that I found really, really a neat community to be part of. I met Walker several years ago and uh, kind of was hanging around him when he came up with the idea, and he asked me to to be a coach and you know it's been a really neat place where I where I've met a lot of people who all have this have the same kind of drive and dream to to acquire businesses which is uh, a neat community to be around. Awesome. So you're based in St. Louis. You have a very diverse background story on business, acquiring, running, operating, coaching. Um, so I'd love to just to start provide the audience with some context, two or three minutes on your professional background before you you bought your your first business. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. My background is a long and winding road. I went to college at a military academy in, in New York called West Point, and um, I was came out of West Point and went into the army for a very short time, and and then I was actually uh, went to grad school and earned an MBA, learned a lot about finance, and didn't really know what I was doing, but stumbled into a, a job trading stocks. And then I moved out of the, the stock trading business and kind of landed in investment management, working for a boutique investment manager. Ultimately landed at a, a large beer company, Anheuser-Busch here in St. Louis, and I was managing pension funds for them. And while I was managing pension funds there, you know, I kind of thought, well, I'm working for a beer company. I should probably learn how to sell beer. It's a pretty cool product to learn about. And so I did and, and got involved in the sales operations side of that business. And then ultimately ended up in a, in a group that was doing some mergers and acquisition work. Basically, they were buying and sell, selling beer distributors, beer wholesalers. And to me, that was the first time it really the light went on for me, that all this kind of theoretical stuff that you learn in grad school about mergers and acquisitions actually happens on the ground with you know, small businesses that are owned by independent people. And it was the first time that I really realized that a, a business could be bought and sold. And it just really was the light went on for me, you know. And then that kind of launched me into the concept of, of buying your own business. Yeah. Now, what, what year was that? Uh, that was actually, uh, I, I uh, was at the brewery from 2003 till 2008. And then in 2008, I actually acquired my first business with my, my now ex-wife. Yeah. Yeah. The whole nother story. Totally. So, so <laughs> yeah, before you decided, like, I can do this, what was the journey for you? Because you saw you were working with this group and and they're probably doing all kind of different deals and whatnot but what made you think like you could do this versus just keep helping you know somebody like them and there's people that 
work for you know private equity or merge and acquisition, and they will never think that. Why? Why? Why choose that? You know, it's funny. My uh, my father in law at the time was a was a serial entrepreneur. He had started up a few different businesses. So I had been around small business owners, and my my wife at the time was working for a hair salon of all things because I don't have any hair myself. But she was working for a hair salon and, and she really, you know, she really, she's an attorney working for a hair salon. And she said, you know, one day I want to be the owner of this company. And so we approached the, the owner and said, you know, and, I, and since I had been involved in watching businesses transact, I kind of got the idea that, hey, you know, like this could really happen. You know, I don't know how to make it happen initially. I mean, I can certainly see that there's there's an option to to own a company and I can really be, you know, kind of control my own destiny. I was never really a good employee for anybody else. So having the option of actually being my own boss was very compelling. I'm curious. I know that that may get a sidetrack from our acquisition conversation, but I think it's a core component on buying businesses, leadership and like, you know, the work. But I think I just I was just thinking about that a few days ago. I was like I don't think I'm a great employee, but then I'm asking myself, am I actually a great leader? I was just having conversations about that. So I don't know where you find yourself right now after learning that. Like if you learn it like, well, I'm not necessarily a great employee. Do you think that that also translates when you're leading or not? Maybe maybe it's a different perspective. No, that's a good question. I, you know, it's it's interesting because I always felt like being a bad employee was a character flaw. And, and to some degree it is. But but the idea that hey, I should I, I don't really enjoy working for somebody else and trying to trying to follow their I, I just didn't like the boundaries that were set for me, and but I did know that uh, I had leadership experience, having been in the army, having gone to West Point. I felt like I had some leadership capability. I learned some, you know, as I learned the business piece of it, it just became clear that. You know, I, I the leadership opportunity to to build teams, to motivate teams, to, to inspire teams, and to to cast vision for a company was there, and so why not do it for myself? I, I really felt like that was my calling. Yeah, fair enough. I and and you know, I think I guess that's that's what I love having this type of conversation, just compared to like a traditional podcast where it's more topic driven. Like I love just chatting about this, and I, I as you're sharing your journey, I'm thinking about you know, as well, my journey. And when I was in high school, I remember telling my mother, like, I want to go to this military school because I love the discipline, like, you know, the the leadership structure, the honor, the respect, the service, the commitment. And, you know, like, I think you mentioned before we started recording, you're collaborating with a, a veterans group right now. And we may touch base on that later, but there is definitely a really interesting component with the military training and all those principles that could be translated into acquisition. So is that something that you feel like you, you kind of like have that and you feel the confidence to do what you've done, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think that the, that everybody has core values, right? Everybody has values that they live by and you may not think about it much and you may not really articulate it or write them down on a list or try to, you know, brainstorm what they are, but everybody has them. And so I felt like my military background gave me some of those tenants, some of those important values in my life that I, that I, you know, that I choose to live by. And, and integrity is one of those things. I, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, come hell or high water, I'm going to do it sometimes to my own detriment. And I feel like I'm an honest player. 
and that and that I really do care about my troops, if you will. So you know that was an experience in the in the military as well. So I think you know if you go through those, you know, like I said, everybody has their core values. How you manifest those and how they come to play in whatever circumstance you're in, whether it's you know you know buying a business, so much of that is based on trust. You know, there's there's you know the acquisition process, working with a seller. I mean, if you haven't built trust with that person, they're not going to sell the business to you. It's just cut and dry. And I told told somebody the other day, and maybe this is you know bad language for a podcast, but you know people don't sell companies to assholes. And you know, it's just I I feel like if you're if you're going to be that kind of person, you know, you're just not going to attract people doing right by you. So I think those core values have, have driven a lot of my decisions in my life, and certainly follow through in any of the aspects of, you know, whether it was leading a company or, you know, helping other people to buy companies. Yeah, absolutely. Now, going back to that first acquisition, so you were contemplating this, you say, I can go research this, we got it. And then it was you and your wife at that point. And what were some of the challenges that, you know, before getting the right business at that point, what were some of the challenges that you found in the process, either sourcing or, you know, maybe conversation with your wife? What was that like? Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny. The initially, I'm, I'm not a great person to talk to about sourcing because the deals that I've done have kind of fallen into my lap. So at that point, my wife at the time was working for a, a business and had been in that business for several years and was kind of the general manager. And at some point she said, you know what, I'm either going to leave here and start my own thing or I'm going to, you know, buy this business from her. And I was like, okay, well, let's make that happen. So we made an offer and we sat down and, and said, we'd like to buy the company. And then it was a matter of really negotiating. And my, my, my wife didn't feel like she was in a position to negotiate because she was operating the business and she felt like that was putting her in conflict with the seller. And so she said, why don't you just take the, you know, take the lead on the negotiation side? And so it really put me in a position of, okay, you know, it was, it was challenging because here I am a guy who's been working in corporate M&A, trying to speak to somebody who had built an amazing business. It was a three and a half, four million dollar hair salon. Okay. That's a huge hair salon. It's way out on the tail for hair salon. And, but she had built that as a nail tech. She had been doing nails and then built this company, right? So it's, so she wasn't a terribly sophisticated seller. But here I am coming at it from, you know, high finance, you know, corporate M&A, you know, kind of mindset. And my spouse at the time is an, is an attorney, like super intimidating couple, right? When you're, when you're a nail tech who's grown a company to three and a half million dollars and you're pretty confident that someone's going to screw you in the, in the process. So, so it was really, it was, it was a circumstance that we were in and we, and we found the business. We really enjoyed, you know, she enjoyed working for the company. We thought the company was really a great target and a great opportunity to acquire it. And, and we went through some negotiations and there were a lot of times where we had to kind of reset and, and rethink about how are, we, how are we approaching this and how do we kind of take the edge off of our approach so that we don't feel like we're jamming this thing down our throat because we wanted to be fair to her. And at the same time, we wanted to make sure that we could still operate the business and be successful on the other side. So there's a lot of kind of finesse that was required in, in negotiating that deal. So super interesting in hindsight to, you know, put yourself in a spot where you're, you know, 
I always tell people that, that the acquisition process itself is all about building candor and, and, and building a relationship with the seller. And it's not that you're going to, you're going to, you know, be hanging out with that person for the rest of your life or anything, but in many cases you have seller notes and you have other things. So there is a relationship going forward, but again, people don't sell companies to people they don't trust. And so it was, it was really a challenge for us to build that trust. Even though my wife had known her for a long time, the, the trust of, Hey, these guys are going to, are not going to, you know, pull one over on me. They're going to treat me well. Yeah. Yeah. Was that a, a three, six month period or how long was that whole process? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Let me think about that. It was probably from the, from the time we announced that we wanted to buy the company till closing was probably a year. We, because it was a friendly transaction, there wasn't a whole lot of, there wasn't a need for hurry and, and to rush through it. We were on two different planets when it came to pricing initially. She had, as a lot of sellers do, just had this overgrown, overblown idea of what the company was worth. And we had to walk her through and again, and not a, you know, we weren't trying to be jerks. We were just saying, Hey, the only way this deal works is if we can pay our debt. And whether it's debt to you or debt to the bank, we're going to have to, we're going to have to have the cash flow to pay for the, pay for the business. So it ultimately took bringing a third party uh, that she trusted to advise her to talk her through. And so we actually went and saw another salon owner who had bought and sold a number of different salon and he sat down kind of as a as a mediator between us and we kind of pitched our arguments as far as pricing was concerned and he fell way our side of the of the argument which was for me I, I just couldn't imagine why you know the pricing would be what she was thinking what it was which was you know 2x what I was thinking yeah it was about closer to 3x what I was thinking you know and and he can't he fell back onto about, you know, one and a half X, which I was okay. I could, I could see us saying that we can afford that. Wow. So there was advisory in both sides and does that whole process with working with that advisor have anything to do with the decision that you made right now to work with sellers and buy like, I think you're working with buyers. Is that correct? Like the coaching that you're now doing like 2022, July, 2022, when recording this podcast, you go back and see like, wow, that was super helpful. And now you're, you're not, not only do you enjoy it, you have the experience. Is that any, any, any relation there? Yeah, I think, I think part of it has, you know, harkens back to those days of, of going through and, and not really knowing. I mean, I feel like, you know, my view is that if you have the aptitude and the skill set and the desire to own a business and yet you don't have a billion dollar idea to start the business from scratch. And frankly, the, the startup world is just, just a really heavy lift. You know, if you're, it would be great to have someone who is walking along with you. I compare it to teaching a kid how to ride a bike, right? Like I'm happy to be that person helping you. I'll hold the back of the bike as long as you need me to hold the back of the bike. But at some point I'm just going to let go and you're going to be just fine. And so I believe that business acquisition is experiential, right? You can talk about it. You can you can go to classes, you can take courses, you can look, you read the books and all the other stuff. But until you buy a company, like that's when the stuff gets real, right? And so it's, it's at that point that you understand, oh, okay, well, you know, the model said this, but real life looks like this. And so, so I'm happy to walk with someone and on that path. And I think that comes from, you know, being able to meet some people who were back when we did, even did our first transaction talking with somebody who had been down the path already 
and you know could help guide us as we were uh, making the acquisition. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, and I say at the beginning of the show, when I have this the, the calls with you, I recall like I was not doing any sophisticated thing, anything crazy, but just the fact that you were there, just listening and supporting that that just meant so much to me because, like you're saying, and everything starts with trust. And the first level of trust got to be in yourself. And when I talked to you and I was refining something or sharing an idea and you were bouncing back and just providing some, some, you know, feedback and whatnot, that gave me a lot of trust in myself. And like, yeah, like I, yeah, we got this. Let's go. So highly recommend for people listening to consider this groups out there. Jeff and I were chatting before recording like Twitter out there. I've been heavily active now on Twitter. Invest and Scale is my, my username on Twitter. And Jeff, if you have Twitter, I'll, I'll leave all the links on the show notes and whatnot and your website as well. But yeah, like there's all kinds of resources nowadays. I think 10 years ago, that was not the case from what I keep hearing from other people. There's not a lot of acquisition resources now. Walker Book is one. Acquisition Lab is it's one. But Jeff, you have many other groups and whatnot. So let's go back to your first acquisition. You went through that. You operated that. There's probably an exit story, something in there. What was the second business? And that was, like, I think it was a completely different, different thing that I heard so long, correct? Yeah. So, so I've, I've acquired a, a number of different companies. While we were owners of the hair salon business, we opened a second location. So that wasn't an acquisition, but that was, you know, that was another SBA loan. So I've been down the SBA path a couple of different times, well, a number of different times. So we later we bought a, a manufacturing company that was part of our supply chain for the hair salon business. So by the, by the time, by 2015, we were doing with their two locations, we're doing about six and a half million maybe in, in sales, which again, you know, just unheard of in the salon world. So we ended up buying an, another half million dollar, dollars in revenue through this, this manufacturing company that was selling products, not only to us, but also to other salons. And so, so, you know, we got involved in that and the opportunity came up again. I talked to the business owner and I said, you know, what's your next, uh, my conversation with her was very subtle. It was, what's your next chapter look like? And she said, you know what? I tried to sell my business a few years ago and it didn't work. We're just trying to recover from that right now. And she said, I don't know what my next chapter is. I said, well, you know, when you're, whatever that next chapter is, we, we'd be interested in talking to you about it because, you know, we, we really love your products and we, and we believe in them. And so six months later, she called us and said, you know, here are my financials, let's go. So those companies were related. Those three businesses, two salons and the manufacturing company were all related. And then funny enough, my next acquisition after that was a, uh, uh, precision machine shop, which was completely related to the hair salon business. So, yeah, I'm curious. I know Walker by the Billigan. He just released a video about like that's one of that was one of his biggest lessons throughout his journey. It's like instead of going in all different industries, just focus on one. Blah blah blah. I hear it. I still want to go into a different industry, and you done it, and you did it again. Right? Is was there a, a, like an intention there by like diversifying risk, or it was just purely an opportunity, like you mentioned? It just showed up, and you did it, or were, were you trying intentionally to say like we got the hair salon now? Let's do something different. Yeah. So I think you know, with the with the menu, the small manufacturing company we bought with the hair salon business, that was purely a little bit of a diversification. Plus, it was opportunistic. You know, the owner was 71 or something like that. And we knew she was moving on. We liked the idea of buying a business where, where they made something. Whereas, you know, the salon business had been all about service providers and, and talent and that sort of thing. 
So we like the idea of having something tangible that we we're selling. And, and so, so in that scenario, it was, it was diversification. When I, after I exited those companies through a divorce, which is, as I always say, a way to exit, not the way I'd recommend anybody, but a way. When I bought the precision machine shop, again, it was purely opportunistic. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with me saying, oh, I mean, other than the fact that I wouldn't buy another hair salon because I had already been down that path. I, I was really open, wide open to ideas and, and opportunities. And it just happened that this one landed in my lap through a stuff. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and ask. And I think I've been talking to a few other people, buyers and like investors and whatnot. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty. I feel super great. I want to continue to buy businesses. So anyways, my, my, my whole thing is just providing the, con- the audience some context on like marriage and like setting some some guidelines for, because I, I know if I was single, like I'll continue to go crazy and buy all this, like just get crazy and buy all kind of this. Now right. it's a little bit, it's more like a teamwork. It's, you know, assessing risk and mitigating like, you know, stress and time and whatnot. So I don't know if you want, like, again, I don't want to ask you about your particular case, but based on your lessons, you, you talk about divorce and exit, any yeah. recommendation for a, a new, <laughs> acquire that it's about to get married? <laughs> yeah, well, I would say a couple things. We were partners in the business. She was 51, I was 49. We thought that the women-owned thing would be a, an advantage to us. She operated the business every day, and I and I didn't. You know, I was kind of, I would come and go. I had other interests that I was involved in, but we had, you know, there were marital assets, right? We had all these things that we acquired or, or, you know, built up during the time we were married. What I would say is a couple things. First of all, as, as much as it pains you to go through, a, if you're going to be a partner, partners in a deal, as much as it pains you to go through the process of actually talking about how do we break this thing up, you still need to do it. You need to do what happens if, we, if, if our marriage doesn't last, what happens if I become disabled, what happens if I die, what happens, you know, those are the kind of questions you have to, you have to solve for. Because they're real and you don't know, you know, tomorrow it's going to bring a different, you know, group of, of, of challenges. And so not doing that leaves you super exposed. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, prepare for the worst, expect the best, but prepare for the worst. And so, you know, I would say that would be my, the, the, the big lesson. Secondly, you know, to the extent that you, if you're working together in the business, there's this, there's an odd, like, I always felt like there was a, we were peers at home, right? We were, we were partners, we were peers. Life was you know, good, we were peers at home. But at the office, someone had to be in charge. And again, it goes back to me not being a terribly good employee. She was in charge of the office and that just was a recipe for disaster. And so, so I would just say, know yourself well enough to know whether that's gonna work or not. If you're gonna be in the, in the office together every day, some people it works just fine. And for some people, it's a disaster. And, and, you know, the dynamic outside of the house is different than the dynamic in the house. Um, and then the final thing I would say is that you really need to draw a hard line between work and home. Because if you're, if you're working together, you know, you start having all that bleed over into the house. And now you've got, you know, the kids need this and there's these stresses and we're parents and whatever else. And then all of a sudden you bring up something from work and, and it just becomes this disaster of, of, you know, all these things bleeding together. And, 
and you really just have to draw a line. Like, Hey, we're not going to talk about work stuff in bed, you know, like, and, and I, I try to coach people that way all the time. And they're like, yeah, sometimes I do. I'm like, just avoid that because it's, and it's hard to avoid because you're so wrapped up in it. And it's so much a part of your life and you've got your, your home is mortgaged to the hill. And, and, you know, that's part of the deal. Like, you know, you've got an SBA loan and you've got personal guarantee and your home has got a mortgage on it and blah, blah, blah. And so it's stressful that way. And, and people keep telling you, Oh, you know, separate work from home. Like, but I can't because it's all tied together. Like, but you really have to spend and, and you have to take time to take care of yourselves, to enjoy each other, to, to be fond of each other and to, you know, to, to go out and travel together or whatever you do that's fun, just because that's why you're together. That's what sparked the relationship in the first place. The business stuff, you know, in my eyes is, is I'd rather let that fail than, than destroy your marriage over it. And so if you're, if you're winning, if you're winning at the office and you're destroying your married life, then you're not winning. Sorry. Yeah. No, and thank you for sharing this. I know, again, it's personal, but I think this is the stuff that is n- it's not in the books. It's not out there. And I think that's really what can break or build a whole successful career in mergers and acquisitions or any business in, in, in general. And, yeah, yeah. And just right. finally, you say, like, I've, we've been talking about prenups. And, of course, like you say, there's personal guarantees. There's loans. There's all these craziness going on. We're working through it. And we're going through people that I was going through, but like the vast majority of the people that I asked friend, friend of mine, like I got a friend of mine that he knows about buying business. He has not buy one. He's more like an executive. And then either male or female, all of us are like, well, why are you talking about a prenup? Do you really love her? And that's like, well, exactly. I, yeah, like, right. I love her so much that I want to protect her and myself and anything. And then divorce, it's such a, you know, a, a common thing nowadays in this, in, in this world that would leave my parents were divorced and again, I think I just, you know, every time I talk about it, I feel bad because I feel guilty. Like, oh, a prenup, I'm being this guy. I don't know. But I think in this context, it's even more relevant because, yeah, I'm going to like, I bought this business, but now I want to buy another one and there's going to be another thing and she's going to be involved. So anyways, I, I think um, right. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, in terms of prenup yeah. and stuff, any any recommendations in that? And Well, I think it's important to, to be very upfront and as much as you can. And I, and I realize that, you know, Love clouds judgment sometimes. I get it. But I do think that there's a need to, to just, to just put your, your wishes out front. I mean, I honestly, I, I, I just got remarried. And so now I'm in a situation. Thank you. So now I'm in a situation where I'm bringing assets into a marriage and she's bringing assets in the marriage and we're bringing, you know, a ton of kids into the marriage and all, you know, all this stuff. And so all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, you know, what are my, what are the, really the things that we want? You know, and you, you have to really think about this kind of the stuff that you don't want to think about, which is, you know, what if I got hit by a truck tomorrow? You know, where would my money go? It would go to her, which is great. But then if she got hit by a truck the next day, then what? You know, so, so it's like that kind of stuff and, and, you know, have those tough conversations and really deal with that and understand, you know, and, and I think your point is exactly right, Gabriel, which is, which is, you know, you love her so much that you want to have these conversations. Most people aren't having them, man. Most people aren't having them and they just let it lie. And then all of a sudden some, you know, something happens, you know, either to you or to her or to, or to the relationship or to the company or whatever. And it's just stuff that's unknown and, and it becomes, you know, comes tension point. It becomes all kinds of things. 
that it wasn't meant to. It was meant to be something to give you generational wealth. It meant it was meant to be something to give you the freedom of being able to run a business on your own and the time, you know, the, the time freedom to be able to do things that you want to do and, and pursue passion. And it wasn't meant to be this thing that, that drove a wedge between you and your spouse. So love it. No, thank you so much. And I hope for the people listening that you take this as, you know, that, that lesson that it is hard to listen to. And I, I was just thinking so much about like, do I ask or not? But I, I'm glad I did because it, it, it really helps a lot. And like for the executive and people in a normal traditional career, they don't have to think about that because it's like, yeah, they'll just work 25 years and then retire period. But here there's a lot going on. So thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. Just a lot of dynamics, man. Things change and, and, you know, markets change and businesses change and, and, you know, relationships change and you throw, start throwing kids in the mix and just a lot of noise, bro. It's like, you know, all over the place. So, so yeah, it's, like I said, most people aren't having those conversations. And if you do, you're, you're, a, you're a good man and you're, and you're showing love to the people around you. So I would strongly encourage you to make sure that, you know, you're just on that same page. I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. So yeah, awesome. So now going back to your second business. So you have the first one, her salon, second one. How many in total you've been through? How many? So, so I so I acquired a hair salon. I opened a second hair salon. We acquired a small manufacturing company. Those three companies are still owned by my ex-wife. Um, so I exited those three companies and, and divorced. Then I acquired a uh, precision machine shop with a partner that I was good friends with in, in college. And that partnership ended up being a bit of a disaster as well. So I exited that company in December of 2020. So after about 18 months, in the, in the meantime, while I owned the salons, I actually started up a uh, Jamba Juice franchisee in the St. Louis area with uh, another guy. So I was partners with, I guess we were probably three or four other guys, partners in a franchise business. We opened five stores and then I exited that after about two years or something like that. Okay. Excellent. Well, yeah, that's a lot of, you know, that's a, that's a really great combo, a lot of experience. In, and, and, and you say a lot of those were also SBA loans, correct? It, SBA was involved somewhere somehow. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I've probably borrowed from the SBA one, two, three, four, at least four times, maybe more than that. But for four SBA loans, most of those were for acquiring businesses or acquiring well, all of those were either for acquiring businesses or acquiring equipment for the businesses, but I think there was only one that was acquiring equipment. The other three were for acquiring businesses. Excellent. And what about the, the franchise stuff? What's the story there, like compared to the regular acquisition small businesses? Was that very different from the stuff that we see at small businesses? Is it more complex or easier? Or Yeah, it's an interesting space. You know, certainly... The, the great thing that comes with the, you know, so, I, so the hair salon businesses were licensees. So we had marketing that was done on a national level. We had a product, a brand that we sold that was national brand. Um, and we had a bunch of other like salons that also sold the same product in, in other cities. Whereas the Jamba Juice business was a franchise business, right? So in the franchise business, they very much dictate what your store looks like, what your, uh, you know, what your menu looks like, how you, you know, the, the deal that you sign up for with the, with the landlord, you know, all the, the, the whole construction project and everything else. So they would literally gave us, this is what your footprint needs to look like. And we take those drawings and give them to a, a local architect who then turn them into a project here. So there's a lot, uh, it's a lot heavier hand 
from the franchisor, but it's also comes with a lot of guidance on how to be successful because they have a lot of examples of successful operators. So now, you know, what they, what they don't do and, and what's more challenging is that, you know, in the Midwest, we didn't have the marketplace like you have in California where, you, where health is a really important thing. You know, as, as you know, like the Midwest is not exactly known for, you know, a bunch of people running around, you know, roller skating and looking super healthy. So, so it's a little heavier lift. And, you know, until you get a certain amount of stores, you're not going to get national advertising in your market. So it's pretty challenging to build. It's very much like a startup. I mean, that's, that's what I would compare it to. It's much more like a startup than it is like a business acquisition because you're starting from zero. And, and it's your job to get word of mouth out. It's your job to do any advertising. And the spends are, are super expensive to get your name in front of people or, or on a billboard or in, you know, ballpark or whatever you're trying to do. So it's, so it's, it's very challenging as a, as a startup business because you're not getting a whole lot of advertising support from national because frankly, they're advertising in markets where they're successful already. And until they're successful in your market, they're not, they're not going to spend the money locally. It's just not going to work that way. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's certainly different. It was, it was very interesting to learn how a franchisor interacts with somebody who's interested in, in, in their brand and, you know, buys the rights and that, you know, they, they dictate kind of everything you do pretty much as far as like how you can, what you can and can't do. And, you know, other sideline products, you know, a lot of times, you know, somebody might think, okay, well, I'll sell the core Jamba Juice products, but I also want to sell, you know, sodas and waters and this and that, like, and corporate's like, nope, not going to happen. So it was very, you know, that part of it was, like I said, pretty heavy handed and it made it more, much more like a, a startup operation than anything. I mean, out there looking for properties and, and talking to landlords and building from scratch and trying to build up some energy behind it and stuff like that. It was, it was pretty heavy lift, frankly. And that was three years total or more, three, about three years. You know, I was, we built, we built five stores in 14 months, wow. which was a lot. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is what happened with my, my partner, one of my partners was a, a pretty well-known guy who, who had a lot of contacts and could raise money and whatever else. And he went off and bought 120 stores out in California. And so he expanded, he, he was really anxious. He loved the brand. He still loves the brand. And he acquired a bunch of stores, corporate stores out in California. So when he did that, it really diluted me quite a bit. And, and I just, and I said, well, I'm not going to be able to do anything in California. So I'm going to stay here. And I exited. So but it was super interesting. I got to spend some time with the franchise, with the franchisor out in California and see their businesses in operation and see the success that they were having. And, uh, and, and we were really excited about the brand here. You know, ultimately the brands here weren't performing like the ones in California. So it's kind of like, you know, you know, they can cut their losses. There's a little bit of a flash in the pan. I think there's only one of those stores is still open. So sadly, but I was in that business for, I would say two years, maybe a little bit more. Excellent. Very, very cool. Yeah. I, I, I don't know much about franchises yet. I just saw a few people in the acquisition lab talking about, franchises so i still gotta learn a lot about that hopefully i can have a few people on the show that you know work on that in the in that field as well to share more but great so i think the the other thing i wanted to talk to you about it's you know one it's partnerships if we have time we will touch base on that but there's one in particular that is related to partnership that it's more about the path so it's about the path of like acquiring a business so there's not 
one right way of doing it. There's multiple ways. Could be creative financing, could be SBA deals, could be, you know, combination of all of the above and like, you know, seller finance and all that stuff. But specifically, I want to talk about this notion of like uh, buying businesses anywhere from 500K to $5 million. It's kind of like a sweet for, especially this community, the people that I'm having in the show, Walker and whatnot. But then there's a step above like search funds. They go raise capital. There's a CEO that wants to run a business and he will own 20, 30%. He'll use that capital. And then throughout three to five years, he'll, you know, getting some of that equity, blah, blah, blah. There's all these different models and super cool and whatnot. But one of the things that I noticed from a lot of the self-funded searchers, SBA back uh, type of deals that are again, less than $5 million, they want to have that independence. And at least I'm going to talk for myself and I'm talk talk about them, but like I think you also mentioned, like freedom, all this stuff. We don't, you know, we don't have, we don't want to be employees. We don't have all the people telling us what to do. But at least on my end, the way I feel is like I do not know how to partner up with people. I do not know what it takes. I do not know like how to handle conflict, and I just try to not do it. And that's why we're like, yeah, we love freedom. And it's just because I'm not ready to deal with like, you know, the conflict and the issues. And that's I think. The more that yeah. I run away from that, the more that I I know I need to go solve that because the bigger and better deals are going to require a team, not a solo thing, not me doing all this stuff. It's going to require yeah. highly skilled, talented people. Yes, you can hire managers, but ultimately, I think it's even more fun to do it with other people. So anyways, I think I just wanted to share that context before we talk about partnership and then you have, have had the ability to partner up with people and now you're seeing all these other people. Mm-hmm saying, I'm going to go to an SBA loan. I'm going to be 100% honored. I don't want any other partners. So is there any in between that you're seeing an opportunity to still work with partners or not? Or like, what are some of the thoughts yeah. that you, you, you hear from this conversation? Yeah, I think I think that, um, you know, partnership is really a, a very challenging space, no doubt, because it goes back to what we were saying before that, you know, things change, circumstances change. Right. So in the moment of the partnership, it sounds like it's a blast. Hey, Gabriel and I are going to go buy this company. It's going to be awesome. But you also have to get to a place where you agree. Okay. Well, who's going to make the final decision when it comes down to it? Who's got the final call? Well, that person's going to be 51% on it. Okay. So someone's going to be 51% on it. And then, and, and that takes a little bit of humility of the other person. And it takes a little bit of, you know, being an adult. And to your point, it takes being able to handle conflict. And so I don't thrive on conflict. I don't know any, well, there are people who do, but I don't. But what I will say is that I think it's important to, I call them a same page meeting. So in the process of, of going through an acquisition and even owning the business, I want to have a, at least a monthly meeting that's aside from all the other meetings of operations and tactical and this kind of stuff. I want to have a monthly meeting where we sit down across the table from each other and look each other in the eye and say, are we still having fun? Is this still cool? Are we on the same page still? We are? Cool. Let's go. Doesn't need to be more than that. Just stare each other in the eyes, reconnect on, on the reason we're doing this stuff together and, and then, you know, move on. Because what happens inevitably without doing that is that, well, I'm here, you know, 50 hours a week and he's only here 30 hours a week, or I'm here 70 hours a week and he's never here. I'm, you know, and this is, this is what I'll tell you. You know, I, I was, I was not going to, I told the guy that I was partners with, Hey, look, I'm just not a guy who's going to work 40 hours a week. It's just not who I am. 
I, I like my flexibility. I'm available 40 hours a week. I'm available 80 hours a week if you need me. But it doesn't do anything for me to sit at a desk without something, without something tangible to work on just for the presence of looking like I'm there for 40 hours. I appreciate that the people making stuff here are here for 40 hours a week and, and we're paying them well to do so. It doesn't mean I need to be here shepherding or overseeing or, or you know, dictating what they do. They are fully competent of, in doing their thing. And my partner was, who originally agreed to that, kind of changed his tack halfway through. Like, well, we got to be, I mean, these guys are working so hard. We got to be here. We got to show them. We're, I'm like, hold it. We, we agreed that that wasn't necessary. But now we're changing, the, changing our tune. And, and then it became an equity thing. It became a, well, I'm here and you're not. And, blah, 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 blah. and, and so that's, that's the biggest challenge, I think. Almost, almost across the board, a, you know, partnerships fall apart because of a perceived equity of who's spending more time or who's giving more effort. And so if you're, you have to just be willing to have those conversations and those upfront, you know, check-ins with each other to say, is this still cool? Are we, is there something that I'm doing that's getting under your skin? Because what I ultimately didn't want to do was three years into our deal, be sitting in the same room, not talking to each other, staring at computer screens, facing away from each other. Right. Like I didn't like that sucks. So, and, 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 and frankly, that was the, that was the outcome of, of, you know, two partnerships. So, you know, my, my ex-wife and I couldn't be in the same room and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I do think that partnerships work. I think that it just requires two adults to enter into a partnership. And, and it requires knowing each other's strength, agreeing that, that we're not the same person, you know, knowing where, what holes we're filling for the other person. Because you're right, Gabrielle, I think that, I think that there are deals that you can do. You can do a, a million dollar deal in a relatively small company and have a team of three or four that you oversee and it's a one man shop and you're running the deal, right? Like that's easy. It's not easy, but it's something you can do with one person. You know, when you're talking about a $10 million deal where you have a team of 20, 25 and you've got millions and millions of dollars of revenue and you've got big clients and this and that and the other thing, it, it really, either you need to have a partner in the, in the deal or you need to find a, a tribe of people to hang out with and, and share your concerns and your worries and your decisions and your your questions and everything else, but somehow or another, you got to find another sounding board to, to work with. So I do think we're, I do think partnerships can work. I just think you have to be really careful about them and you have to set them up in a way that when they fall apart or if they fall apart, that they fall apart in a way that doesn't destroy and, and doesn't bring the, the machine to a halt, right? Like in exiting and I'll kind of, I'll kind of stair step into my conversation about uh, the machine shop. You know, in that scenario, we had a partnership disagreement. The fact that we didn't get along did not stop the company from operating because we had mechanisms in our partnership agreement that allowed us to split up the company. Okay, so if you had those things in place, you know, is it optimal? Are people in a good mood when they see mom and dad fighting? <laughs> when, you know, it, no, generally not, but it's not something that's going to debilitate the company or keep the company from operating because one person has their, you know, their their hands in the, in the bank account that, you know, that's hurting the, in order to hurt the other person or whatever, you know, there's, I think you just need to have all those things laid out early on in a partnership so that you can, you know, what's, what's tearing apart the partnership looks like. 
Absolutely. No, great, great content here, Jeff. I really appreciate that. And like you mentioned, this is why we have this podcast, why you're doing what you're doing, which I want to end with that. Just share specifically, how are you supporting acquisition entrepreneurs? And, and then for the people listening, again, I will emphasize what Jeff just said is community. If there's not a group of partners that you have the ability to collaborate and work and go through the world, you know, like all this craziness and then join a community. So either acquisition lab or stuff like what Jeff has, that it's more one-on-one or group-based. I'm, you know, I'm excited to hear more about what you have, Jeff, but it is at least for me, what keeps me going every week. I still join to the acquisition lab, even though I closed, you know, six months ago, I'm still joining to the sessions and I just get a lot of energy because the worst thing that we can think is the problems are pervasive, they're permanent and they're personal. So when we go here, all these other stories, we realize like, yeah, it's not just not just me. It's not forever. There's a solution. And then, you know, yeah, there's a community that it's here with, you know, insights or support and help. So, um, yeah, let's let's hear more about what you're doing, Jeff, and what's the capacity that you're supporting acquisition entrepreneurs. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Gabriel. So, as you know, I work with the Acquisition Lab, and I'm a, a coach, and I do that weekly. And I jump on calls and, and kind of open mic time for, for people to ask questions. And it's a really, it's good for me because I'm around people who, who are looking to acquire companies and, and able to help them and, and share my experiences there. My, my kind of day job is to, is to be a coach for an organization called the, the Lions Pride, T-H-E, the Lions Pride. And I, it's, a, it's, a, it's founded by a 1977 grad from West Point. So he's a little bit older than me. And we help small business owners accelerate their business, you know, hopefully 10x, but also accelerate their lives at the same time. So like I said earlier, it's important that if, if you're winning at the office and destroying your marriage, you're not winning, guys. So we have a kind of a holistic approach to coaching business owners, both on the business side with one-page business plan and, and tools that can help people accelerate their business. And on the personal side, both with their family and the, the person in the mirror through self-assessments and what we call a one-page personal plan. Um, all these tools that we can bring to bear on helping people you know, it, as business owners. On the side, another side hustle, I, I started an organization called Thayer Gate Project, which refers to the front gates of West Point. And ThayerGateProject.com is, is kind of where you find me there. But what I'm doing there is I'm really trying to help one-on-one help people who are trying to acquire businesses because I really truly feel that the only way to create generational is through business ownership. You know, 90% of the wealthy, the ultra wealthy in the United States are business owners. And even if you peel out 20% of those, which are, you know, doctors and lawyers who have their own practice or whatever, that's a huge portion of the community of the, of the ultra wealthy that are, are business owners. And, you know, my, my thought is that you can either have that billion dollar idea and start it up from scratch, which not many of, many of us have, or you can buy a business that's already found product market fit that is already, you know, proven business model. And you can take that business and, and, uh, you know, take it over and, and operate it and hopefully grow it in a way that can create wealth for you and your family. And, and, and that's really what we're trying to do. So I'm somebody who will get, will help somebody go through the process of acquiring company, getting it through to closing. And then I can kind of pin in that, that one-on-one coaching for that first year or two or whatever it takes to, to kind of, like I said earlier, let go of the back of the bike and let that person, you know, kind of pedal on their own. And now they, now they're a business owner and, and they're generating wealth for their family. 
Absolutely. Well, congratulations on that. Sounds awesome. And I'll uh, make sure that I add all the links to the show notes. And yeah, anything else to wrap up? Any final thoughts or, or advice for searchers or business acquirers? I know you shared a lot so far, really great advice and, and, and lessons, but I'm wondering if there's any final thought for, uh, for the audience. Yeah. You know, first of all, thanks for doing this, Gabriel. I think that, I think that putting, putting this kind of content out in the market is super helpful. You know, business acquisition is certainly an, an experiential uh, practice. You know, you can talk about it, you can read about it, you can, you know, take classes, you can go to, you know, MBA programs, and they'll all talk about different things and you can learn tons. But until you actually do it, it's kind of like the, you know, the Mike Tyson thing, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And so, so, you know, until you actually get your hands on a business and operate a business, you really don't know, you know, what you don't know. And one other thing I'll say is that there's a bit of a fallacy, and this is kind of a complete, you know, ad hoc thought process. There's a fallacy out there that acquiring a very small business is a good way to dip your, your toe in the water. And what I'll say is that that's a really, it's a tougher lift than you think, because a small business that's doing 150 or $300,000 in sales hasn't discovered product market fit yet. And so it's possible that that product, that that business may not be around for very long or that it's very much a, a whim type business that's going to change, you know, very quickly. Whereas a business that's got substantial revenues, a million dollars, two million dollars is more likely to have found that product market fit and be able to, to, to be worthy of a business that's going to create wealth for your family. So again, thanks again for, for inviting me. I'm humbled that you would have me on the, on a, on the podcast and, I think you're doing some great stuff. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate you. And thank you for the people listening until next week. And Jeff, I hope I can have you for a second round, probably in a few months. And uh, to go back, but keep up the good work. And thank you for your help. I'd be happy to. Thanks, Gabriel. Thank you, Jeff. See you, bro.